Welcome to the Flower Hour Podcast, the podcast where conversations blossom. It is your boy, Sean Flores. If you love this podcast and you've really enjoyed it, please share, subscribe and follow and look forward to the journey we will be going on. Hello, hello, hello. I'm sure by now you're used to my voice. It's your boy, Sean Flores with the Flower Hour Podcast. Today, I am joined by Kairu Fai an artist and a mental health researcher. And if any of you could see what Kai looks like right now on camera, he's a man that is sure in his masculinity and his manhood. Why? Because he's wearing pink. Quite often we don't see men wear pink and he's wearing light blue. This tells me this is already about to be a bright (laughs) and a vibrant and an enlightening conversation. Kai, how are you doing today, my brother? And I'm so thankful and happy to have you on. Thank you, Sean, man. And it is Kay, just to uh, go back to that one on that. But um, I'm really honored to be here. You know, it's been a long time coming. We've been talking about trying to make this happen for quite a while. So I'm very thankful that we finally allowed it to, to align today. And I feel excited to be on this platform, bro. Oh, most definitely. I saw the fantastic work that you were doing and it deeply intrigued me simply by your color scheme and as i said Mm. it shouldn't even be something that's an issue but we know with gender Mm. roles and gender stereotypes Mm -hmm. i remember when i was younger and i dared to wear a pink shirt and pink looks quite good on my skin tone tell a lie because i'm because because i'm a little lighty like i'm a browning as people would call me right that's good and i remember my mom said you best take that off right now you're looking like a faggot i'll never forget wow you know, n- not to disrespect my mom, but she came from a culture mm. where it's d- deeply homophobic. You know, Caribbean mm-hmm. culture in some aspects is like that. But in a more positive light, they're, they're moving on and things are mm-hmm. becoming better for people. And there's no there's a lot less gender stereotypes and roles. So I saw the fantastic work you did and I had to come and reach out to you. I had to give you the chance and the opportunity to come and tell your story. So how are you? And most importantly, who are you? I always ask this to people. Who are you? Right. I mean, thank you so much for firstly just sharing your own honest uh, experiences around, yeah, the, the battles of, of patriarchy and homophobia and how those things interplay in the ways in which we raise for sure, because I have similar stories in that regard. But I guess at some point we can uncover that. But the question, I guess, who am I? You know, it's 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 an it's a it's a minefield in terms of trying to navigate that. I think I'm still trying to figure out, figure that out. I do know who it is that I am not. And I do start off by perhaps trying to quantify who I am by highlighting who I'm not. And I think who I'm not is, is a, is a, is a man that is confined by the patriarchal structures and the patriarchal norms that have been socialized into me from a very young age. I'm an African uh, first generation British that, was raised in three continents. I was born in England and at the age of three, I moved to Nigeria where my mom and father is from. At the age of eight, I moved to California and then I moved back to the UK. So I didn't grow up around my father and I grew up, you know, with numerous extended families. So I guess in that context, being heavily um, influenced by the African culture, where, wherever it is that I was growing up in, you know, the African culture still held a, a strong uh, strong hold on, on me in, in terms of family values, traditional ideas and, and culture. So all these things, as you highlighted, are deeply steeped in ideas of what masculinity is predefined to be, which again is predicated upon the ideas of patriarchy and ultimately is uh, the concepts of homophobia seep into that. So ideas of who I should have been, which is, you know, a black male who aspires to 
put food on a table because I'm the man and I should have a job that is either, you know, medicine, engineering, law, or um, pharmacy. Those are, I guess, the four options for African child like myself. Um, And then being this creative child who inherently I'm quite expressive and growing up in that environment where everything was the opposite of that it was suppressive you know I needed to be a particular version of what my mom and my aunties would have been proud of and growing up in environments where you know again as a young black boy you know the yearn for male uh, um, role model was inevitably pertinent in the ways in which I socialized because I didn't have a father figure around. So ultimately what that led to was me kind of circumventing what a pathway that, that looked like from my mother's perspective was a positive pathway to, I guess, feeling like I needed to know who I was as a young black male. And ultimately the ideas that were shown to me of what a young black male was on these different continents, especially in America was, was one that was heavily manufactured by the capitalist system you know this ideas of what black masculinity should be hyper machismo really emotionless really very dark tone in the, in the aesthetic expressions you know not 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 uh, shy of you know getting in, in, involved in confrontation and fights all these ideas that were you know portrayed either through music through movies through aesthetics that were continually uh, exposed to me as a young black male um that's what i thought i was i was at the time and, and you know what that meant for me was you know i was easily kind of drawn into those types of ideas of masculinity and you know being around people who were involved in violence involved in, in drug activities I thought that was a trajectory that was meant for me because there wasn't any other counter stereotypical ideas of what masculinity should be until I came across, you know, uh, Lauren Hill, the miseducation Lauren Hill album. I think that was the beginning of my own learning, you know, understanding what love meant, understanding what ideas of identity meant, hearing these little young kids talk about love in a classroom setting. I just hearing those conversations being navigated uh, through uh, in that album interlude was just a beautiful thing. And then I discovered art. I discovered Tupac and I understood this complexity of masculinities these huge spectrums of expressions that he ultimately explored through his music you know one side he he had this hyper gangster outlook but then on the other side you know he explored this myriad of emotions you know through various elements the love he has for his mother the love for himself understanding identity so anyway so all these things allowed me to start to shave off all these ideas that I thought were predestined for me as a black male and through that journey, which is still ongoing at the moment, you know, I'm slowly trying to uncover who I really am, which is the person who is very expressive, who loves to um, show how he feels on the outside through my aesthetic representation. I love to, I'm such a colorful individual inside of my mind. And it was a disservice for me to not represent that out outwardly. And ultimately for me coming close to that version of myself through, you know, being, you know, disowned at certain points, my mother for similar reasons like you, cause any single thing I did, she was like, people are going to think you're gay, man. Like, what's that about? You know? And I'm like, well, let's go back to the bottom. Why is the idea of being gay something that we should look upon as the worst possible, you know, verdict as a male, you know, and then, you know, my mom being heavily Christian and, you know, a a huge kind of uh, uh, figure in the the church, you know, those conversations were not being, uh, I guess, what's the word? They were not encouraged, no, where they engaged in, you know, in in a very open manner. So ultimately, you know, that brought a lot of friction and just really just trying to, 
find who I was by ultimately bucking against what I was supposed to be based on tradition, culture, and religion. And that's where I am right now. And ultimately, I guess that's why I do the work that I do with young boys, particularly because I know that's what I needed when I was their age. And uh, as a 37-year-old man now, you know, being in a position where I'm just uncovering some of these things, you know, I feel like it's important for me to definitely be trying to encourage and empower young boys at a much younger age to be able to explore and get to these points in their lives. That sounds like a journey that I couldn't even fathom the shoes you would have to wear to cover those mm. miles. If, mm. wow, it, I the, the parallels I can draw to my journey, it's absolutely crazy. I've said wow. this before on one of my episodes that one of my friends, when I had long hair and he had long mm. hair, so we both took our hair out for each other and I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, just right. boys being boys that we're helping out each other. I remember my mom came down the stairs and she gave me that look as if to say, like, what are you two doing? And I remember when my friend left, my mom said, you know, you two looked like a bunch of gays. And I'm like, for taking each other's hair out. I'm like, are mm. you really being that serious? Is my masculinity and my manhood predetermined by the fact I'm taking out my boy's hair? I'm like, mm. really? I'm like, how, re how reductive and how mm. regressive that statement mm. is. However... I had to understand it from my mother's perspective. She grew up in that kind of culture. Mm -hmm, she could not mm -hmm. see it in any kind of way. And you know what I aligned with deeply of when you said men wearing tone deaf colors, you know, mm. you're right. Like this hoodie, if anyone could see it, it's fluorescent. And um, probably that. one of the brightest items I, I've ever worn in my life. And wow. I think it's quite reflective of my personality. Some people would say I'm quite right. monotone, but then other right. people would say I express a myriad of emotions the same way you said Tupac does. Mm. I'm different people around different people and I can already right. feel the warmth and the energy you've brought to the conversation and I'm feeling right. positive and upbeat. So that says a lot That's about, great. you said you're colorful in mind, but clearly you're mm -hmm. colorful in the energy and the vibration that you're right. pushing out. So you've already made me a fan, right? That's great. Take me through that journey in terms of when you had your mom telling you all this sort of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, saying to you, people are going to think you're gay. Did mm -hmm. that ever make you question your sexuality? I mean, that's a really fantastic question, because even that those those statements still come today, you know, like I remember, like, I think this summer I pierced my nose, you know, and my mom was not having it like I'm a grown man. You know, I don't live with my mom, nothing like that, you know, but, you know. I remember it was a whole conversation. We had like an hour after I'd done it. You know, she's like, man, like, I just don't, I, if I see you, I'm going to cross the road. Like, you know, I just think it's just gay. And I'm just like, you know, so I guess that conversation has always inherently been there in terms of my mom always just resorting to any, anything that I wore that was remotely unmasculine and her definitions, which is anything that was not sort of, again, just monotone colors and just very muted colors. Then she'd be like, ah that's kind of gay people are going to think you're gay and all that stuff and you know sometimes for a long time i never engaged in the conversation but i knew it had an impact on me because it made me question what it is that because in my head for a long time i'd always felt like i was secure in my sexuality and knowing that i was a heterosexual male um but ultimately knowing that my expression is not connected to my sexuality that I could choose to express however I want to express. And it should not be in any way to me. Cause I know those two never were at odds. The fact that I was a heterosexual male never made me feel like, okay, because of that, then I shouldn't 
wear this or I shouldn't speak like this or I shouldn't do this. I just felt like I knew that I needed to be true to who I was. And ultimately, whatever anybody else's perception of that is, is irrelevant to me, should be irrelevant to me. But I knew that because, you know, our mother's love has always been a huge part of everything in terms of, you know, especially in the, in the void of a, of a male figure in the household. And then looking at, you know, understanding, the more I started to understand things and read a lot, you know, one of the, the huge authors that really allowed me to understand this at a greater depth is Bell Hooks. You know? Oh, I was about spoke- to say, Bell Hooks, yes, my favorite absolutely. author of all Boy, time. Boy, me and you, Sean, oh, absolutely. God. She just breaks it down in ways that just like, they just, they just blow my mind, you, do you know? know what's, and you know, do you yeah, know what's crazy, right? She's hated now by third wave feminists simply because she addresses certain points within masculinity mm-hmm. and manhood and motherhood and single parenthood that we're afraid to have. So when you said that right. to me, I'm looking to my left and I've got all her books, man. I've even wow, got her children's boy. books. Like wow, that's incredible. Has deeply influenced my very yeah. existence. Boy, that's that's so incredible to connect with somebody else that has such great reverence for, for Bell Hooks in that manner, because for me, she absolutely changed my, my life, you know, just, just really uncovering, you know, one of the things that, that really resonate with me strongly is something that she spoke about the induction, the indoctrination of young boys into patriarchy through the concept of shame. And ultimately when I, I read that, it just blew my mind because I was like, wow, that's what happened. That's what my mother was doing all this time. It was just inflicting this concept of shame on me that I would always remember that. So I would always go in the direction that allowed me not to experience that shame that she and all the other women around uh, projected on me from a very young age when I did something that ultimately was very counter masculine and their ideas, they came to me straight away and said, what is that boy? Are you, are you gay? Or is that, you know, people are going to think you're gay or you're, you're man up or you're sissy, all these things, you know? And ultimately those things served as a uh, reminder that I should never, ever allow myself to experience those levels of shame anymore. And ultimately as an adult, when I started to kind of, I guess, engage in these conversations with my mom, I realized that one of the biggest things I needed to do was to disarm myself from this feeling of shame that was inherently holding me back from being who I authentically wanted to be because I felt like either my mother was going to be ashamed of me or, you know, this was going to bring shame on me by other male peers in the society and other women ultimately as well. And I realized, you know, one of the biggest liberations that I could, you know, uh, uh, empower myself with was to be liberated from other people's perspectives of me, which ultimately wow. would remove this idea wow. of feeling shameful. Cause it doesn't matter to me if I, I mean, I do a lot of work in the prison and I go into the prison like this Damn. and you can imagine what happens when I'm walking down a wing and people are like, oh, who's that faggot, bro? Who's that gay guy, man? Get out of here, bro. You're moist. You're wet. All of these. And I ultimately, you know, then when they come into the sessions, you know, and I start to curate conversations and allow for them to explore these things, all of a sudden these guys are breaking down in tears. But ultimately for me, knowing that I didn't have to come in there seeking their validation as a man because I know that ultimately my aesthetic presence challenges everything they know and everything that's led them to the prison in itself is is what I am challenging by walking into the prison in pink because ultimately some of these guys are in there for you know uh gbh for uh for uh abh all these things that resort from these concepts of being told that you have to be this idea of a man so if somebody challenges you and tries to violate you or calls you wet and moist you're sparking bro or you go back pull the thing and then get the, the situation sorted out and then you're in here riding a bird for 15 you know so it's it's crazy and it's so interesting seeing how all these things have led the versions of masculinities that most of us have 
decided to all have been, I guess, imprisoned to live within, um, leading us down to very detrimental um, s- uh, states in our lives and, and, and ultimately in the states of our, of our existence as, as a society as well. You know how powerful it is when you said that you had to free yourself of shame by living by certain people's opinions. And I say this to right. people. If you live for other people's opinions, you die by their approval. I always say Absolutely, this to people, bro. right? And it's, it's powerful. so powerful when you would walk into wherever you are in your clothes, free mm-hmm. from shame, and you show people who you are. That is right. powerful within itself. And Absolutely. the smile that goes through my face and through my body tells me that you're a man you live for yourself and you die mm. by only your own opinion and your Absolutely. own approval. That Absolutely. is incredible. People do not realize. And I've said this to people, for example, right? I don't like to dress up all the time. I, I find mm. it a bit long to dress up. So when right. I do dress up and I want to look good, my, some of my friends are always like, oh, bro, dress up a little bit more. I said, who am I doing it for? Am I doing right. it for your approval or am I doing it for right. me? I said right. I can slap on bin bags and I can still feel as confident as I want That's to be one, compared to when I'm in a suit. And you're right, right? right? Clothes are a sec are our are our second skin. We know mm-hmm. clothes are the greatest expression of us. And typically mm-hmm. we have racialized clothing typically when it comes to black right. boys, right? The right. Hoodies, Absolutely. The track suits. But nowadays, um, what is lingerie to women is the gray sweatpants, the gray hoodie, the white shirt, right. the fresh right. shirt. And a few right. and tattoos. That in itself. Right, right. So it really makes you sit down and think about the world in which we're living in, right? Absolutely. So when we, you and I have found that reference of bell hooks, you're right. Mm-hmm. Bell hooks work was emancipatory for me. It was mm. liberating for me. It made me sit down and realize, hold up. I'm secure enough in who I am. But then, right. truthfully, I've questioned myself on the back of other people's opinions. So right. I've modeled back in the day a bit more. I did fashion modeling, right? Right, right. I've worn dresses. I've had my lips done in terms of um, they've put lipstick on. I've had right. makeup on. I never wow. questioned myself. Right. Until I was questioned about who I was. So mm. I used to have messages like, Sean, bro, like, are you gay? Like, like, like why go on? Like, Sean, are you bisexual? Right. And it started to compound the interest mm. that build on me. That mm. seed was being put into the soil. And right. I started unknowingly watering in it. I started right. to water it, right? And then I remember it, fashion is a really interesting conversation in itself because yeah, I, can only I do think in some aspects that is an over-feminization of black men. And why I mm. argue that is because some people say there's nothing more powerful in society than a heterosexual black man who loves a Mm. black woman. How Mm -hmm. do you feel about that statement? And how do you feel about perhaps the over-feminization of black men within the fashion industry itself? Wow, that's massively deep. Um, I think there's, there's multiple layers to this. I think for me, we have to look at the way the society is set up and has been set up for, for, you know, a long, long time. When we think about the intersection, I mean, as, as uh, Bell Hooks puts it, you know, the um, white supremacist, the imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchal system and looking at how these systems all intersect and then looking at, for example, the visual imagery that have for the most of my young to semi-adult life that have been 
completely monetized have been the image of a black male that is completely physically dominant, aggressive, dangerous, um, and for the most part, a gangster, a thug, and this guy that is worth being scared of. That's the visual imagery of black masculinity that has, for the most part, uh, yielded the most uh, commercial success, the most monetary gains. So therefore, when we understand that media, music, fashion have really profited from that visual imagery of black male, then with the growing movement of feminism, the growing movement of LGBTQ rights, I think that then being intersected with the, ra- the, 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 I guess, almost radical shift in the visual imagery, especially within the fashion industry, that was then kind of, I guess, more visually present in terms of now more, I guess, as you said, brighter colors, more androgynous um, uh, visualization of masculinities, um, and especially when you think about black male, which again, when you put that against what had previously been existing, it's a stark contrast. So therefore I can imagine why that argument of the increased effeminization of the black, black body, which ultimately um, makes a lot of people then think that there's an agenda behind that. For me personally, I don't know if I believe that that is a, that is a gen, like that's an actual agenda, but I do believe that there was a, I guess maybe a, a shift in the actual um, casting culture. There was a shift in the um, ideas that were presented to those who were in the advertising industries in terms of what they wanted to start to represent more. And ultimately, again, you cannot take that away from the powers that be that this was also a conscious ideas to that in terms of uh, what they wanted to shift um, the products and, and, the, and the visual consciousness of people to, to us. But for me, I don't personally think because again when you, if if i was to agree with that idea then i would believe that the concept of the myriad of masculinities that we should have the freedom to express there is something inherently um insidiously negative about that and ultimately for me i don't believe that because i do believe again you know i've gone and spent years um not years, actually, uh, a few years ago, I went and spent six weeks in Ethiopia with uh, some indigenous tribes. And ultimately, you know, the visuals that were hit to me about what the ideas of masculinity is and have has been in particular environments was so challenging because I was in those environments seeing men, you know, with visual adornments that I've always and always um, associated with femininity, you know, men with face, uh, face paints, men who were grooming each other, who were, you know, helping each other um, uh, paint their bodies, grooming their private parts, all in the open, you know, so I was in villages where the men were walking around naked, women were walking around naked, men were holding hands. So all these ideas of the expression of self that, again, you know, uh, it's completely removed from the concept of social media, internet, electricity. In these villages, they never had any of these things. And then seeing these representations of masculine rep- identities was so mind-blowing to me because all these things that I was looking at, I was like, on paper, these things are deemed effeminate from this the Western uh, ideas that I have about masculinity. But being in these environments and seeing these freedom of men to express themselves in ways that are completely just authentic to who they are, but not being defined by what that should mean or what that shouldn't mean. So for me, I guess that really was a, was a very 
uh, incredibly eye-opening experience for me to really challenge what I have always known masculinity to be. So therefore, coming back to your question, I don't necessarily believe that there is a um, there is an agenda to continually uh, make men more feminine. And actually, for me, if that is an agenda, I would see it as a balance to what had already existed, which was more detrimental in terms of because if people say, you know, that the union of black male and black female, you know, is one of the most powerful existence in our time. But actually looking at the visual aesthetics that had prevailed before that, that also served to destroy the union because more men were going into prison, more men were committing more um, uh, physical and um, yeah, uh, homicidal uh, uh, engagements through, through violence, through other elements, through domestic violence because of the visual imagery that had been purported to us as how we should always see ourselves. So ultimately, what that was doing was also separating the black family because the black man was going more to prison um, than any other, you know, um, ethnic minority in, 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 in the States. Um, again, the black man was more likely to be involved in things that uh, engaged in him being killed or, or, or um, uh, at least maimed in some way. So therefore those visuals that existed prior to this so-called effeminization of the male body also didn't serve the black family anyway. So ultimately for me, you know, I would, I would, you know, I, I don't have any strong reasons to believe that that was a, that was a direct agenda, but I do believe that, you know, that, that was a consciousness to shift the visual imagery. And ultimately we know that wherever there's a consciousness to do something like that, there is a capitalization uh, from a monetary perspective from, from the powers that be. And ultimately we cannot, we cannot not address that in that conversation as well. I think that has been one of the most holistic wholesome answers I have ever received it's really made me sit down and think because in many aspects you're absolutely right whatever representation we've had as black males it's been monetized right so right, for example right. you saw recently Candace Owens was really angry at Harry Styles for wearing a dress right mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll use an example of an item an item back in the day people forgot heels were worn by kings who were short to reach mm-hmm. you know the correct height next to a woman people don't right. realize that but because men stopped being um you know as sure and there wasn't much money they marketed mm-hmm. it towards women that is right. a really interesting conversation and it's very we think about gendered items but whenever we think about the monetization that has really made me think that regardless what black people wear there's money to be made in it and we know right there's also been a sexual ferocity and an appetite from populations outside of the black community and even within the black community to have that thug, to have that predator, that Mm -hmm. hypersexualized black male. And listen, I've got to be honest with you, in many aspects, I have enjoyed, you know, being seen like that because it feeds into my ego, right? But one thing I've learned that by being woke, I didn't free my um ego to become or is it i didn't free my soul to become a slave to my ego so there's still things right i'm absolutely unlearning but when you see mm-hmm. so as you uh, so i'm sure you've realized this in yourself you're a good looking man you're expressive hmm. right yeah i'm sure before you went on this journey you know you go out and you might act in a certain kind of way that is toxically masculine in many mm-hmm. aspects in terms of the boundaries and the binaries mm-hmm. in which we lock ourselves in right and not right operate outside of you get that positive reinforcement from females out there. Absolutely. Like, no matter what, you get that positive reinforcement. Like I Absolutely. remember in terms of when you're more aggressive, you're more assertive, you're more mm-hmm. competitive. Women look at you twice and perhaps yes. evolutionary aspect, perhaps that is. 
But there's mm. also that positive reinforcement and there becomes that positive loop in which it becomes so hard for men to come out of that circle. So I've got to ask you, you know, you've got these men in society that they've gone to prison and they've probably been positively rewarded for practicing dangerous and detrimental and bewildering acts of masculinity in the name mm-hmm. of feeding their ego or right. perhaps meeting their financial needs. How mm-hmm. do you say to a black man, listen, bro, there's no need for you to do that when all the badders on the blocks, they want to free it up for him. How do you get him right. to stop that when yeah. it's literally all around him? And that probably even plays into the idea of sexual addiction. So I'd love to mm-hmm. know, how do you get those men to stop that? Bro, I mean, you hit the nail on the head in so many precise ways. It's it's incredible. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest challenges, you know, trying to tell a young boy or even a grown man, you know, about how a counter stereotypical idea of representation of masculinities could serve him best when everything that, as you highlighted, that is around him reinforces only one type of masculinity in a positive way. You know, the guy who's on the block, who's pushing, I don't know, uh, you know, a Lamborghini Jeep, you know, and everybody know he's getting his money from trap. You know, everybody knows he's getting his money from the bando. That guy is the guy that all the girls are out there trying to, you know, DM him on a regular basis. They're trying to jump in his whip, all of that. You're trying to get this guy to be somebody else when he can only see one outcome for that version. He becomes a target on the road because people are probably going to try and G-check him more because they think he's wet, he's moist. You're going to be, you know, less uh, appealing to women because women are going to think, oh, you're soft anyway. You know, I want some other guy who's more tough. So that's that's one of the biggest challenges that exists because everything that, you know, reinforces a reward system for a particular version of masculinity is not pointing in the direction of this more expressive, uh, more... Um, emotionally literate um this counter stereotypical idea of toxic masculinity that exists so therefore trying to to convince somebody that it's worth shedding all these shackles that the society has been you know reinforcing within them is one of the biggest tasks and for me one of the things that i that i use as a as a as a as a hook point is really dissecting the structures because especially when i'm working with young black boys particularly say you know i i i work a lot with a lot of 13 year olds because i think in terms of evidence of research that age 13 is one of the most impactful ages to make a, a, an intervention because of the cognitive stage of their development where they are not completely formed in their identity to resist new ideas but they are not too uh young where their uh cognitive abilities is, is still quite premature so they are at such an interesting cusp where they could take in new um theories and actually start to implement that in their own self and their own identity so engaging with these young boys i start to ask them this concept of and I use a lot of evocative tools. And as an artist, that's one of the most powerful things that I find in that, you know, just showing them various images and getting them to respond and react to these images. So I have an image that I shot of two young boys in uh, Ethiopia where they just, I, I was just walking out in this village and these young boys saw me and all of a sudden they just embraced each other, like saying, take a picture of us. And the embrace was such a beautifully pure embrace where their faces were touching um, and they were just holding each other so tight and I show that image to these young boys and you know I work in environments like you know Hackney, Peckham, Camberwell, Tottenham and these young boys the first thing they say bro that's first thing I ask them when I see this image like what do you feel when you look at this and they say oh you know they feel I feel like uh, it's loving it's brotherhood it's you know they're really tight and then I ask them 
what do you would you take a picture of with your friend like this no friend, that's gay man why would i do that that's moist that's wet that's this that's that and i'm like that's interesting because the first response you said when i told you what do you feel about this image was one that was filled with joy positivity togetherness love all of these things and all of a sudden i'm asking you do you not love your friend do you not feel this feeling of brotherhood and togetherness They'd be like, yeah, I do, but I just spot my guy. That's cool. That's all I do. That's, <laughs> I don't need to be touching his face with him, bro. That's gay. And all of a sudden, I start to deconstruct. Okay, so let's look at, you know, what the trajectory of a regular kid that's come from your environment is for the most part in terms of what you see, what you hear on the music that you listen to, especially this generation, they listen a lot to drill, you know, and a lot of the, the ideas of masculinity that's purported on these, um, uh, in this particular um, genre of, of, of uh, music that is predominantly created by black uh, folks, is ultimately this hyper toxic, you know, violence inducing, energy which ultimately when we look at the trajectory of a lot of these young people we deconstruct that we think okay yes you think they have all the bad bees okay that's questionable because a lot of these young people a lot of these people feel very difficult they find it difficult to trust these women because they potentially don't believe these women are into them because of who they are who they are in their own person ultimately they feel like it's the trappings that come with their image and their status so therefore a lot of these men are more paranoid a lot of these men are more likely to engage in um violent acts towards these women because of excessive uh, distrust these men are uh, more likely to be more controlling and and more um yeah more uh i guess yeah more controlling is the word and then again looking at the the violence that that comes out of the the music that they create and, and the life that they've lived prior to the music and ultimately looking at all these markers that yes we look at the money they have when you look at this status of the fact that they, they say they have girls and they get girls but ultimately is that the type of girl you would want a girl who only is into you because of your status who's only into you because you are quick to fight on her behalf for another guy when you can look at, a, at, at an alternative way to engage in discourse with somebody who potentially might be disrespectful to her as opposed to just just I don't know, sparking him and punching him and whatever it is that, that you might believe is the way to be a man in that, in that scenario. So getting them to really look at that and think about actually the prison is 97% male and 3% yeah. female. Is that Absolutely. coincidence? I asked the question and ultimately they'd be like, well, not really. No. Okay. So why is that, that me- the prison system is completely overwhelmingly skewed towards the male identity. Right. Yes. So therefore looking at that and thinking again, when we look into that and think, especially in the UK, looking at the fact that we only make up 3% of the population, but over 46% of the uh, prison population is black and minority ethnic. So looking at that and thinking these are not a coincidence when we look at the ways in which we have been programmed and socialized to exist as men it inevitably takes us down in one um outcome again when i look at the disproportionality of the black male to be detained by the mental health act you know four times more likely than any other race when we look at who's more likely to take their lives by suicide the black male also represents that um, particular um statistic overwhelmingly so when we start to deconstruct these things we realize that actually the ideas of masculinity that we have been sold does not profit us in the long term you know we might look at these little trappings as oh that's a reward yeah he's got the car he's got the girls he's got that but actually in the long term you know there's all these mental health issues of paranoia schizophrenia all these other things that again exist within these communities of these men that we look at and herald as the success of toxic masculinities and and again you know we cannot remove the 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 outcomes or or the the 
I guess the the hooks of capitalism in this because ultimately, you know, looking at what most of these young people and most of us potentially come from environments where you know we were in handed no um you know trust fund and nothing like that. So most people see the idea of getting out the hood as a win. So whatever by any means necessary, somebody who came from the same block as me, he was trapping, he's now rapping, he's come out, he's bought his mama mansion. How can you tell me that that's not the legit route that equals the success of being how he was, which is being tough, being a, a criminal, being a gangster, and now he's made it. But ultimately, trying to help them peel back these facades and actually look at a lot of the underlying issues that surround this ideas of masculinity. So for me, that's one of the biggest pieces of work that I do, especially when I work with this demographic of 13-year-old boys, but also when I'm in prison. I think that's that's a really interesting conversation because a lot of these young people, you know, prison is a rite of passage for most of them. You know, yes. they've had to use that as an opportunity to show, actually, I'm not the boy anymore. Now I can put this in a, in a you know, I can, you know, put this amount of money for my marge now. She don't have to worry about this. Or, you know, this guy was taking my lunch money when I was in year seven. And he came back around when I was in year 10, thought he was going to try and move to me like that. I had to show him that I ain't a, you know, I ain't a waste man no punk. more. And all, yeah, exactly. But you're in a prison cell. You're riding a seven year bird. So who's a punk right now? You know, I mean, let's let's deep that, you know, because at the end of the day, you did all these things for people out there and you think you have this reputation. But these guys ain't coming to check for you out here. You know, the visiting day is filled with your mom with tears and your baby mother. You know, those are the people that are actually dealing with the consequences of this rite of passage of masculinity. So actually, let's deep that. And all of a sudden, you know, I see tears coming out their eyes. And all of a sudden, they are allowing this side of themselves, this vulnerability to come out because, you know, they have these emotional cords that are tied to the people that they genuinely love, who they've always suppressed these feelings within them because they thought actually the ways of actually gaining the respect of these people is by being this version of myself. And then actually after seeing the consequences of that, they realize that this daughter that they have, that they think, you know, putting around, putting aside 50K is going to be good for her. But this daughter only just wants her dad to be there to take her to school. So no matter how much you think you've put to the side that you're nice, when you come out, your daughter don't need that. She don't want that from you. She just wants her dad in the physical form. You can't give her that. And ultimately, they start to break down and realize this. And ultimately, that's what I think for me is, is the hook that I use to empower these young men to start to you know unshackle themselves from these refrains of, of masculinity that has been sold to, to all of us you know, for the longest. Damn, bro. You know, when, when you hear someone say that, um, the daughter just wants her dad to be there. It makes me feel emotional because a man thinks he's doing what's right and the daughter mm. just wants her dad around. Like that is emotional. When you think about how emotive that is, that makes me want to cry. And I'm not one right. of those men who are afraid to show how I feel. Like I'll cry right, right. fully right now. And that's not my... Um, that's issue. amazing. And we know that in the UK prison population that there's more Afro-Carib... There's more black people essentially yeah. in yeah. percentages compared to America. And we, we know right. that in the UK... Um, the last time I checked statistics, I think it was in 2008 or 2018, that there were over 13 private prisons. So we also know that there's a monetary factor in terms of right. why more black boys are put into prison. And the yep. fact you said it's a rite of passage, that in itself is absolutely crazy because I've mm-hmm. spoken with the uh, Manhood Academy, which I'm maybe sure that you're right. familiar with yeah, their yeah. work. I know, and they I know believe for sure. in the rite of passage in terms of inducting boys into manhood or masculinity so when the fact we think about prison as a transition that mm-hmm. rite of passage into manhood to then realize hold up there's something mm-hmm. wrong with my issues now right right we also know as well that um 
boys are more prone to being aggressive. We're more prone to being competitive. We know that femininity, women are emotionally a bit more mature than men. We right. know that, you know, maturation with boys can be put off. Boys can put off being mature for years. We, we can right. do it simply because there's no longer, there's not really a biological incentive in many mm. aspects for us to have to do right. that. So right. it's quite hard for a lot of boys. We're raising a lot of broken boys into broken men. And as much right. as I hate that term broken, and I've said that before, sometimes if the shoe fits, it fits, right? Right, right. So the fact we hear everything you said, I'm hearing that loud and clear. And that's registering with me because I grew up in a single parent family, right? Mm. My mom, fantastic mother, but I've said this before and I'll say it again. I needed my dad. My dad died. Right. He died when I right. was um, six on Christmas day and I missed him to death, but I never realized it until I got older. I never reckoned mm. with parental right. bereavement. And I'm hoping to right. in 2021 be able to give a TEDx talk on that so I can inspire other oh, young boys. Like, so powerful, even man. if your dad is not in your life, that's bereavement, man. Like you're suffering, right, that's right. grief, that's shock. Bro, just to say, sorry to interject, you know, just last week, it's one of the questions that I asked these young people because the program I deliver that I designed is based upon an eight-week pillar, uh, pillars of happiness. And I designed that based on those independent uh, themes. So one of the themes is togetherness and belonging. And as when I explore all these things that we just spoke about, and I asked these young boys, because they say, you know what? No, nah, men are not supposed to do that, bro. So that's moist. Why is, you know, why is he doing that? Why is this? And I say, okay, how many of you guys have ever heard your dad say, I love you? So in a room of 20 boys, I've ever only seen two hands up ever. And that's not, you know, that's mind blowing. Just like me, I put my hand up too, because I've never heard my dad say, I love you. So I say to them, do we think that's an accident? Yeah. That you have grown up, whether your father being around or not around, even him being physically there, but has never been able, he's ne you never heard him say, I love you. Exactly. So therefore, that in itself is a bereavement because exactly emotionally, you know, one boy was like, if my dad ever said that, I'll walk out of the room because that's just, that's just awkward. And I'm exactly. like, even, even just the fact that that in itself becomes something that has been taught to us as something that's awkward, just tells the whole story exactly. so yeah what you said is, is just so bang on about that but then it's crazy because when you don't hear someone tell you i love you we know words of affirmation are incredibly important we know boys need to hear it as much as girls and we know absolutely been, we know there's been research and literature that has shown that for example when boys are crying when they're children you know they're left yep. to cry to almost yes suck it up, exactly we also know as children get older and families, you know, start to disperse, boys lose out on time with their fathers, right? Absolutely. You've grown up in a single parent family. Okay, mm -hmm. can I ask you, if you don't mind sharing, mm -hmm. what happened with your father and just how has it impacted you with not having your own father right. around? Bro, I mean, that's something I'm still uncovering today, you know? I mean, because mine is, is such an interesting um, situation in that my father didn't pass away. My father didn't, absolutely just disappear my father was so my my mother at the age of when i was three she decided that she didn't want to be in england because she just didn't like this country like that she felt like she wanted to be in her homeland um where she felt more safe where she felt more like culturally was what was uh i guess conducive for her development and her growth and for the children that she had had which was myself and my older sister at the point my father was like nah I don't really like we've been here we tried we struggled to get here we was doing cleaning jobs like now I feel like you know maybe you know we can try and make something out of our lives I ain't going back so my mom was like okay cool all right I'll go back and then you come back every year I come back every year and then we'll figure out when the young people when the kids are, are grown 
And then that was that. My mom went to Nigeria. My father was like, he just stayed over here and he just started doing his own thing. He was just like, cool. He never really turned up, you know? So between three and the age of eight, I probably saw him twice, you know, maybe one year. He might just turn up before Christmas and, and just, you know, whatever, bring some Primark stuff and be like, yo, whatever. And I'm like, cool. I'm excited because I need to see my father. And then from the age of eight, when I moved to the States, I didn't really see him for really for 12 years, if anything, you know, and then I came back to the UK and then I saw him again, you know, and I think, you know, at a time when I was in university, I lived with him and it was one of the most confusing experiences because all of a sudden I've never had a father in my life. And this guy's trying to tell me where you're going. When are you coming back? I'm like, who are you, bro? Like, get out of here. So for me, I realized that my pain was so delayed because I never thought I didn't have a father. You know what I mean? Like I knew that my father was over there and I knew that he was still sort of married to my mother, but he just never turned up. He was never there. He didn't show up. So in my head, I was just like, I never really ever was in a conversation with people till like maybe when I was like late twenties and saying, Oh, I didn't grow up with my father. Cause like, yeah, I know my father. Like he was, he was always about, but like all my years from like when I was three to 20, I never had my father around. And th- those were some of the most formative periods in my life where I needed male guidance. I needed somebody to be there physically to tell me to just, again, re- reassure me that I'm loved and I'm lovable, you know? Um, because again, that really fractured the relationship I had with my mother because my mother, again, as most black mothers do, they struggle to replicate the experiences and uh, physical um yeah, the physical representation of a man because nobody can do that. A father cannot do that for a mother. Neither can a mother do that. And ultimately, because they struggle at that, they go overboard with the heaviness. So yes. my mother was really trying to be very kind of, you know, heavy handed in the way she dealt with me and try to, you know, whip me all the time with belts and stuff. And I was like, get out of here. So for me, I got massively tougher in that regard because I was just like, that's all you got. Just trying to whip me into shape. But actually... That ain't really, I've learned to be immune to that. So cool. Okay. I could take a couple licks. Good. Then I move on. Cause you ain't really trying to sort me out. So all of a sudden, you know, I would reach out to other, I would kind of lean towards other male figures who were absolutely destructive in their lives to in the ways in which they live their lives. But for me, that's what I was yearning for because I didn't have any male role models at home. So, you know, people who were drug dealers, people who were hard in the streets. Like I was like, okay, cool. You know, they would, I would just hang out with them because that's, I needed a male figure and they knew that I needed that. So they try to use that void to kind of f- fulfill their own needs, which was to get a young kid who was going to do this for them or do that for them or, or somebody who they could exploit and manipulate, you know, to do various things for them because they knew that I didn't have this male figure in my household. So for me, that was one of the most kind of, you know, incredible learners when I grew up older to realize that, wow, I didn't actually realize that I didn't grow up with my father. And that's why all these things that I was doing when I was younger were my ways of trying to find a male uh, role model in my, in my life, because I didn't have one. So for me, you know, that's basically the journey. And until today, you know, the relationship I have with my father is incredibly fractured. Like I like him as a, as a regular dude, like he's cool. We could talk about sports. He's like one of the most, you know, interesting thinkers that I know, but in terms of what, the role of a father or caregiver is he was absolutely unable to be that in any capacity. He cannot even remember my birthday. He doesn't even, you know, I remember recently, like two uh, last year, you know, I did this, 
I had an exhibition at the mayor of London's office and, and the mayor of London wanted me to come in and do a speech about what it is that I do and, and speak on that. And I invited my father. That's the first thing I ever invited my father to. And I went on stage, absolutely destroyed the whole event. Everybody was just clapping for almost two minutes. I came off. My sisters was like, they came and gave me a hug saying, wow, man, you blew that away. And my father never said a word to me, never said a word to me. You know, I got featured in the Guardian the other day. And my father was like, yeah, um, like he saw the, 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 the spread. And one thing he said was like, the only thing he said to me was like, oh, I didn't know that um, your project cost this amount to deliver. I'm like, oh, yeah, it does. That's all. That's all he said to me. He never said one congratulating word, never said, man, I'm proud of you. None of that. And I realized at that moment that I still really wanted his approval. I still really needed him to say, son, I see you. You are lovable. I'm proud of you. He never said any of those words. And the way it impacted me, I was so shocked because I didn't know that I still needed that at this age that I am. And that's how I know that it's one of the most impacting um, things that ever happened to me in my life, realizing that, you know, my father's void was something that could never be filled and really, really impacted my trajectory as a, as a man and how I'm still on learning and uncovering a lot of those impacts that it still had on me as a, as a man. I've said before that as children, we bear the sins of our parents, right? And you're mm. right that there's just a biological, spiritual, mental, emotional yearning to have your father's approval, you know? Mm. As I grew up, um, my mom only really congratulated me for my educational achievements, but that's very much mm. the culture, you know, if right, you do well right. educationally, that's when they're most proud of you. Right, I can't right. imagine what it would have felt like for you, your dad to just go, son, I'm proud of you, you know, mm. and it's, it's really hard as children. We have to learn to forgive our parents. And mm. I, I say that that's easier said than done. It's because true. it's true. There's no parent manual to how they raise us. That's true. And you, that's and true. you know how, did you know how I, how much I can align with the idea of and the truth that growing up with a single mother, your mother's more harsh on you because she, mm-hmm. my mother wanted to keep me so much on the straight and narrow that it almost gave her an anxiety and panic attack. If right, she felt wow. like I was doing something that was off. And wow. I wish that if my dad was alive, I think my dad would have understood me a lot more simply because a man aligns with a man the same way us mm-hmm. boy us men we can't understand everything a daughter goes through but we can give her the best example of what a man right. could be should be or right. should aim to be when she goes up with a man right. or woman whatever it might be and right. i feel like right. the role of fathers is overlooked and underplayed in society and whether that's due to mm. the misandrian society some people argue that many organizations such as black lives matter they want to dismantle the nuclear family but i want to take mm. the time to address that in many aspects because mm. what it is is they don't they want to expand mm. the nuclear family under the premise of a right. child in, not embraced by its village will burn it down to feel it's warm right right know that Bro. a child embraced by the village will ultimately grow up to be a powerful human that's not right. to take away from the fact of how important a father is right right mandate to the long standing issue within our community what I think is so mm. powerful is whenever I'm out on the street and I see a dad, um, you know, playing with his kids, I'm just like, rah. I, I, I always go, do you know how happy I am to see that? And he probably I thinks, know, oh, this is just normal to me. But I'm just like, mm. do you know how important this is for your kids? Do you know how important it is mm. for your kids to know that you love them? How important it is mm-hmm. for you to stay with your children? And it makes me emotional because... I didn't have that. You know, I watch videos of fathers returning home from war. Mm. gets to me because i'm like i wish my dad would return home like i miss my dad more than i miss Mm. anything else in this world 
And it's just because mm. I know he, he understood me, you know, I was sick. Mm. I don't remember a lot about him, but everyone tells me how much he loved me. Everyone tells mm. me how much he cared for me. And for me to even understand that warmth is something that just so many young boys need. I mm. went with my friend to American football training. I didn't partake in a training that day. Mm. And there was this kid, he was struggling, but he was strong. He kept, he kept up with um, the rest of the other kids. And when it, when it, at the end of the session, I went up to him and I said, bro, you did so damn well. You are strong. You are powerful. And you know, the kid said to me, really? Bob, I felt emotional, wow. you know, because I'm like, this kid has probably never heard that. I'm like, wow, so talented. And I said, I actually mean it. I'm not trying to sweeten up your heart. I said, mm. I genuinely mm. believe you are talented. And he was like, really? He t- I said, don't you believe in yourself? And he said, no, I don't. Do you know how many young boys feel like that? No. And then they project that out into the world. And I'm sure you know from rap, music especially in general, mm-hmm. that the greatest way we get over our trauma is always with money. We always attribute it right. value right. of trauma with somehow there's an amount of money we can get to get over it. Do you know? And, and, yeah, and it exactly. Work like that, bro. No, so, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just listening to you, bro. Because exactly everything you're saying just, just chimes very strongly with everything that it is that I believe, but also everything that I encounter working with these young boys. You know, because you know, as I said, I work predominantly with a lot of 13 year olds, and again, just, just coming out of those sessions every time and just realizing, wow. Again, it's not shocking because I see myself in those boys because I recognize everything that they're going through in a particular way. Realizing that you know these young boys are shut of self-esteem and confidence in themselves and their own abilities because their fathers again when we look at this because i've always been interested in this conversation and you know a lot of people have always talked about the concept of you know the, the absent black father and all that stuff and for me i, I you know this idea that there's a mythology and, and that there is this you know over kind of monetization of this agenda um but ultimately however we dress up the situation Evidentially and statistically, there is a lot of black homes that are without father figures, but there is a myriad of reasons for this, which I don't believe is accounted for when this actual mythology is spoken about. Ultimately, people look at it and think it's only the doing of the black man himself, and therefore he's the one that is at fault for the reasons why he's absent, as opposed to looking at the the overall sociological constructions of what exists within the black parenthood and black families that make it easier for black males to be drawn to violence or therefore, you know, needing to getting involved in things that may end up leaving, leading to the deaths of them or the the destruction of the family in itself. So anyway, so realizing that most rooms that I'm in with 20 black boys at a time, the percentage of boys in there without fathers is much higher than those who have fathers at home and realizing that, the impact this has on these young boys is so evident to see because I recognize that within me, you know, every time they do something or they say something and I, and I, you know, I celebrate them, the shock in their faces and the shocks in their response is just like, really me? Like, I'm like, yeah, that's so incredibly um, inspiring to hear you say that. or I feel so proud of you that you did that. And he's just so shocked that anybody, especially a black male could recognize something in him that is not the idea of, Oh, you just banged that guy up, man. That's your heart. You know, like recognizing elements of vulnerability. So when they open up, I just pause the room and say, man, that's so brave, man. Like, I'm so inspired by you. And he's just looking at me like, is he talking to me? You know, I'm like, yes, because I know that nobody's ever championed that element of your identity or yourself or being able, if anything, people have actually uh, repudiated that version of yourself because that is seen as moist and wet and all of these other things. So, yeah. So for me, you know, realizing that 
the idea of a male being in the environments where they are exposed to positive representations of a male in their lives consistently is can never be understated it's it's almost singularly one of the the biggest um uh i think specific inter- uh interjections that exist in a child's life when you think about what trajectory they can go you know having a a male role model that is positive not just any male role model that is positive in their lives can really be the the actual um singular thing that could change that young person's trajectory from going down this particular pathway to the other um and and for me the older i get the more i start to realize that that is singularly one of the the biggest you know factors that that could really determine the outcomes of of a young black male in the society that we live in uh for sure Uh, absolutely and whenever we think about fathers you're right there's so many other reasons why a lot of fathers aren't in children's lives you know i've spoken to some fathers and they've told me openly they said they don't know how to be a father and they've said mm. the mother to their child doesn't understand that they don't know and they're afraid to open up and i could only right. imagine that and i'm not what i'm not using on this podcast is justifying a man not being in his life but there's mm-hmm. sometimes wider reasons a lot of men become mm-hmm. scared and i'm not saying right that women should become rehabilitation centers for broken men in not. many other right. aspects. They've got their own work to do. But a lot of men are just simply afraid. They Absolutely. haven't had a father themselves. And mm-hmm. I remember there was a really good, there was a really fantastic quote that said, two boys grew up with an alcoholic father. One of them became an alcoholic. And when asked the reasons why, he said, I watched my father. The other one didn't become an alcoholic. And the same reason he had was, I watched my father. Now, there's always mm-hmm. two outcomes, right? But we have different right, responses right. and we have different stimuli that we respond to. And I think people forget this Absolutely. all the time. You know, we're so harsh and we're so quick to kick sometimes men when they're down, you know, be like, you're this, you're that. But you're right. When was the last time a, bl- a black man heard? You're fantastic, man. Like, you're amazing. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know... It's crazy when you said about the two Ethiopian boys when when they hugged and said the picture face to face because when my friend goes to hug me he he's a, he's a lover man he's soft he's into music that's all he's seen in his whole um life when he goes to hug me I'm like what are you doing man and I realized I had to sit down and reckon with myself and I realized do you know mm. what I don't like to be hugged my mom didn't have to hug me that much mm. and when she did hug me I used to ask what do you want and even as a result, right, right. go to hug my mum, she was like, what do you want? You know, coming mm. from this, I don't like to use the, the word dysfunctional because it Trans- has such right, a right. heavy, anchoring, negative right. connotation to it. But right, right, I think right. there's no other word that I could use to describe it. It was dysfunctional, you know? And it made Absolutely. me realise as I grew up in life, now at 26, I'm trying to recognise my friends for the positive that they're doing. So I might say to my mm. friend, Yo, I'm thank I thank you for coming and spending some time with me, man. I appreciate right. it. Thank you for you know being consistent. Thank you for not flaking mm. on me. Thank you for just being communicative mm. with me. Just those small things I've realized, Sean, that doesn't make you gay. That doesn't make you dis right. 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 share positive emotion. What is it about young black men sometimes growing up? that we are so attracted to that negative emotion. But as I've already said, we know we have that positive loop, right? That's Mm -hmm. one thing. But why is it 
negativity seems to sell more commercially even within our community is it those remnants from slavery because for example Mm. we know that there was issues such as buck breaking where the slaves used to rape black men and and you know emasculate them in front of their families and that broke up the black home in ways that we could never imagine there's all these different things that are happening Mm -hmm. right and i've I've written about this in a lot of my work and a lot of the work Mm. that i do we've got to find a space for black men and black women to coexist harmoniously and sometimes that's not always always realistic but mm-hmm. where we can come together and have a conversation at the round table without people feeling attacked without mm-hmm. people feeling like you know pe- nobody wants to listen to them why are we so attracted to the negative aspects compared to the positive aspects because think for example it's the first time we've ever had a conversation like you know yeah. via this but we can find so much to that we've been through but we have found the positives out of that is it just a matter of time that we can get over the negativity or is it something that comes with maturation as young black men i mean i don't think any of those two things are given that because of maturation or time we would ultimately arrive at this destination that we both are which is a consistent journey because i know i know men that are 60 years old or 70 years old or, or however old that are still infantile in their in their emotional uh development still very young in the ways in which they express themselves still yearn for you know validation by other men as to how they are the man in in the house and they're 70 years old and these are men that are still very much crippled by the patriarchal idea of masculinity so for me i don't believe time nor maturation as just bare virtue of of just letting the years roll by would get us to that destination of being able to to explore the positivities that we can explore to allow her our development and masculinity to be much more positively fruitful but i do believe what is important is again looking at the fact that this is a system that's built strategically for a reason, you know? So therefore, when we look at, you know, all the, the, just all of us, like say, for example, you know, and I don't want this to come out, come out like, you know, I am, you know, bashing a particular type of music or whatnot, because, you know, as creators, I think it's important that we express ourselves, but what we cannot not do is not be accountable for the outcomes that are are for the most part directly or indirectly linked to to what we put out there in the world that's that's for sure so again i think about you know a a random drill artist could put a song out today in three hours it's probably got a million views yeah a majority of the viewers are young men and young black boys predominantly but then counter that to that you know somebody else who makes music that's not drill you know, might put out a song equally incredible and probably has a big following themselves too. For example, you know, somebody like J. Cole or whatever, or Kendrick could put out a song. They have huge followings. Their, their following does not, you know, does not, I mean, their, their music does not get the same kind of um, views, the same kind of uh, a reach as, say, for example, someone like 6ix9ine or, or, or whoever it is, anybody that makes music that is overtly exploring um, violence, gangsterism, uh, drug trade, all of these things. So therefore, we know that the market is set up for that type of outcomes. Yes. You know, the person who is more, you know, gangster driven. I mean, I, I remember very vividly, I think in the early 2000s, you know, the 50 Cent and the Kanye West, which almost were a very stark um, 
contrast of the types of masculinities that were being projected at the time. Kanye West was the, you know, polo top, you know, uh, cashmere jumper wearing, you know, light colored, you know, and he, he spoke openly about how, you know, he was always being laughed at and mimicked as a rapper. And then the, the complete opposite at the time was the 50 cent got shot, you know, nine times hyper gangster, you know, all of that imagery. And I remember those two were pit, pit against each other when they brought out an album at a time. And it was a big thing because everybody was like, oh, who's going to sell more? Who's going to sell more? you know and and that was almost a marker point for the versions of masculinities that have previously been created and ultimately based on the formulas that existed would always uh prevail which was the 50 cent version and somebody like Kanye West coming out and almost going left field with it shocked everybody and ultimately what that highlighted was there was a lot of men that also wanted to see that version of themselves out there but prior to that there was no representation of it so for me, you know, understanding that the, the businesses that have existed in the entertainment industry, in the movie industry, in the fashion industry have been set up to capitalize on one version of masculinity. So therefore, you know, men have always, I mean, again, you know, we look at, you know, um, music that held out of the Caribbean. Majority of it is completely, a lot of it has been always entrenched in homophobic rhetoric, Absolutely. you know, things that, you know, that, that only celebrate one version of masculine which is the type that daggers any woman and just basically has all these girls that on on uh on call has you know anything that he wants drugs gangsterism uh weapons but nothing about showing love to another male nothing about you know representing uh, a version of themselves that 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 values loyalty that values brotherhood that values all these other things so so if Everything that surrounds our popular culture growing up is only pointed in one direction. It's not a surprise that men do not have any other blueprint of what men should be. Because ultimately, the same way men have been missold these ideas, women are being missold these ideas of what men they should aspire to be with. Because mm. the men that they are told they should look out for are the men who protect them. They're the men who put money on the table. They're the men who do not let anybody disrespect them when they are in a rave and, he and another guy touches their butt, you know, because then he's just going to show up and just bang him. They're obviously attracted to men who are taller and bigger than them because they want to feel more protected and secure. So all the, nothing is being told to girls about a man who's emotionally mature, a man who's able to open up and express these feelings and talk openly and honestly, a man who's able to express himself in the authenticity of his, of his individuality. None of these things are given to women as things to aspire for if they are to be heterosexual females and, and, and attract men. It's all these other things which are being sold. So therefore the society's created this match of what men should be and what women should aspire for. And nothing within that leaves room for a counter stereotypical idea of masculinity. And therefore, even if you aspire for that, the danger is then if you're heterosexual, there's no woman that's going to be taught to look out for that because you're not a match for them. So therein lies a lot of the challenges that have been created consciously by the society that we live in. And that's why it's, it's such a big task and a big ask to try and figure out a way to resell a new idea um, to, to young boys growing up and men to, to, to aspire for within themselves um, because there is no evidence of real rewards that come with that version of masculinity. And you're right that we know that, for example, children and adults, they need positive rewards. They need whatever it is, mm -hmm. it stimulates them, right? And as you said, mm -hmm. for example, when you think about the Caribbean, the greatest export mm -hmm. has been, you know, Bob Marley, reggae. But then right. you on from that and you realize it's, for example, the culture we've been able to import. Um, and that is with artists such as Popcorn, Movado, right. so much right. more. They've been able to break in Vibes Cartel. They broke the right. 
Well, Popcorn, I think, out of all the Jamaican artists has broken into the UK scene. You've seen him collaborating right. with individuals right. such as Lowski and so much mm-hmm. more. But then now through the independent you know, labels, as in people who are independent, free off a label, mm-hmm. you have Chronics, you've got um, Coffee, who are starting to bring right. back that positivity, starting to bring right. back that love and that light. Mm-hmm. And in, in accordance with what you said, that there is such an incentive to bring out toxic music. And mm-hmm. it, you see that even if a lot of women nowadays, who am I to argue about Meg Stallion or Cardi right. B? Femininity is a whole nother conversation within itself. Right, right. I Absolutely. think when it comes to us men, especially, the music we listen to is everything. The music, the, what right. you put in and what you put out. You know, you had the issues with Rick Ross where he brought out the um, song and he had a lyric, what was it? Pop a Molly and I'm sweating or put a date rape drink in her mm-hmm. drug and a, mm-hmm. put a date rape um, drug, drug in her drink. drink. All these things contribute to why men seem to feel a certain kind of way. And th- again, all of this performative masculinity, all the right. ways that we see this, right? So just how impactful have you seen your work has become in addressing, you know, these toxic stereotypes to men or to young boys right. growing up? and becoming men bro i mean i take i take that i take that that's a life that's a life goal for me and it's a life purpose i take it so seriously because i know that you know it's it's a life and death situation life and death for boys either in the physical death or the uh psychological emotional death of men period and i know that for me the job that i do with young boys and ultimately men at large is so massive you know the responsibility and you know working with young boys year in year out week in week out and seeing how they emote i mean the first week i have something called a mood box which i create and i get these young boys every day when i come into the session every week to write how they feel they're not allowed to write one word they're only allowed to elaborate on a point. So the first few things when I come into the session, when I first meet them on the paper, they write calm, cool, drippy, chill, um, pissed. And I'm like, that's, I'm not going to take that. You need to elaborate. Why do you feel pissed today? Who's pissed you off? What's the emotion behind it? You know, good. What does good mean? Tell me why do you feel happy or good or whatever it is? Because these are language that boys are not even given to be able to articulate or express themselves. They don't even know. They struggle for the first few weeks to think of how to even elaborate on a point. You know, because I'm like, good is a mask word. It doesn't tell what the emotion inside is. Exactly. You know, and that's why for boys, frustration, all these other emotions that they are allowed to have and anger, they don't have more ways to express that. So ultimately, if somebody steps on them or somebody violates them or makes them look like, you know, a neek, they can articulate that in ways that doesn't resort to violence, but because they don't have these tools, the first thing they want to do is just bang him because they're embarrassed. They feel shame. They cannot yep. say these words. So instead of actually finding ways to articulate the emotion, they just think, well, the only language I have is violence. So I'm just exactly. going to go and hit this guy because then I cannot actually speak about it. People are laughing at me. I cannot articulate these emotions. So for me, one of the biggest tools is trying to empower boys with the tools to emotionally be literate. And Working with these young boys for eight weeks, it's almost so incredible all the time just seeing the range of emotion development that's happened in these boys' lives. The ability to be able to, you know, articulate themselves and understand themselves in ways that they probably didn't have a conducive environment to nurture. Ways, I mean, seeing these young boys form 
healthy togetherness within a group of other 19 uh, black boys in a room that they might see around in the school, but actually are able to articulate how they feel within that group and not feel ashamed to be able to see themselves not as an op because again i speak very uh, very you know um explicitly about the system that's created this idea that we look at ourselves as our own enemies so yes. a young boy that's i don't know from a, a particular council estate in hackney goes off ends in the next place he might see a white white guy walk past He's not going to look around and say that guy's my op. Exactly. But the next black guy that's wearing a tracksuit bottom that looks exactly like him, that's the guy he's looking out for. That's the guy that he thinks wants him dead. That's the guy that he thinks wants to G-check him. And that idea has been portrayed and sold to us that we look at us, ourselves as our own enemies. And I do not buy into this idea of black on black crime, but we do understand that there are these intersecting ideas that pervade race in terms of how we look at ourselves as our own enemy and race being a common denominator. But outside of that, there's a lot of other factors, socioeconomically, poverty, all these other elements, which make it not just a black on black situation. It's just a, a situation around our own psychological idea of ourselves as aggressors, as dangerous, as, uh, as nothing but negative. So again, allowing these young boys to deconstruct that idea of looking at themselves as lovable, therefore looking at another black boy as somebody that they can love without feeling like that makes them gay, without feeling like that makes them softer, that makes them moist. To actually look at each other in a positive way as opposed to looking at somebody as they up. So really for me, you know, working with these young boys over an eight week period, helping them uncover all these ideas that are so insidiously planted in our existence of ourselves and allowing them to, to create positive, harmonious um, relationships between boys that look like them, allowing them to identify the range of emotions that they have the rights to feel, um, allowing them to think about alternative ways for conflict resolution that do not result in violence, allowing them to provide an opportunity to feel lovable um, without thinking that that's not something that is uh, afforded to people that look like them. So for me, I see all these things, some in a very tangible way that I can account, but there's a lot that is just anecdotal examples that I can give from now to tomorrow that are not quantitative, that can show Absolutely. the impact of how these programs have radically changed young boys' lives uh, from now to, to, to hopefully when they, they are old enough to, to start to you know bring other children into the world if they choose to do that so they can carry on this continual mindset shift that is happening at this stage in their lives. That's the hope that I have. Sure. absolutely and you're right sometimes emotions can't be quantified however the world we're moving into technology will soon start to quantify it and i could only imagine the reality that you're able to perpetuate for these children is so far outside of their own it must feel like a marvel universe in many other absolutely. aspects i've gone to schools and um with alongside two other black boys we used to go and teach um these children oh, wow. right and if i could tell you when we used to walk into the classroom, I had cane rows. So in many aspects, mm. I probably looked like a pretty boy, right? Mm. And these kids, automatically, they would listen. You know, a lot of them were black. They were white students, mm -hmm. two Asian students. But the classroom would fall deaf when we would start teaching. And we're teaching with this passion and this vigor mm. that a lot of teachers aren't able to manifest, perhaps maybe because the education system has stifled their once Absolutely. dreams that they had. And it's now become a job that we, in which they get right. paid. And right. we're teaching them about race, education, and music. So we're talking mm. 
and exploring for them grandmaster flex and exploring mm. the concept of cream and how cash rules everything around me breaking right, down right. hip-hop breaking right. down education and breaking down the racial aspects for example mm. the war on drugs these kids mm. they're so engaged at the end of the session kids are like sir can you click like sir can you like can you come back please even right. recently i saw a girl that recognized me from class i was sitting down in shortage with my friend trying to charge my phone and she was like i remember you you came to my wow. school one time and taught wow. a project and i was like hold at first i didn't recognize her right I'm right like wait I recognize you now. Do you know how powerful that is? What I did sat with that child for the rest of her life. And imagine the work you're doing with young boys, showing them an alternative way to be a man, to be masculine. That's going to sit with them for the rest of their life. They're going to remember that. And as you said, when you're catching them at 13, that psychological foundation that's going to take them through manhood Mm -hmm. is going to sit with them. They're always going to remember you for the work that you are doing. I'm so thankful there's individuals like yourself who are doing the groundwork, the grassroots work that needs to be done. And you've been so open and you've been so transparent with me. We've even gone well over my usual podcast time, but I am more than happy with that because I believe anyone who's going to be listening to this is going to walk away empowered, invigorated, and with a new sense of self, especially for the young boys that are listening. Tell me a little bit more. Take me through the journey of what you've created and just how have you seen yourself change from the beginning to now? Great. I mean, yeah, again, I just want to say I feel super honored to be on this platform and just to be able to speak openly about these things with somebody who I believe is absolutely mirroring the same feeling, emotion and energy. And and I think that just makes for incredible listening, I believe, uh, for those who do decide to tune in. So for me, I think the Smiling Boys Project was initially, you know, uh, a brainchild of mine in 2018 initially because, um, at that stage was when we started to hear about on a political level anyway about the increase in youth violence predominantly speaking about it from a racialized term knife or knife knife uh, knife crime which is a very racialized term and ultimately a lot of the um, statistics that were being provided at that time was very much skewed towards black boys being victims and per- perpetrators so for me hearing a lot of the discourse on that level m- most of the the solutions were you know criminal justice, informed most of it was increased criminalization more police in in uh, minority ethnic communities even some conversations about police in schools um hearing about yeah all those types of angles of dealing with the problem nothing was from a public health approach again being an artist and somebody who had worked for a long time with young people specifically black boys um across different elements of the society working in prisons working with young people in gangs and young people in mainstream education and people refer units so i knew that okay here comes a time that i now need to create the solution that i need to see because nobody's talking about it nobody's talking about how to create something that is based upon a holistic approach that is driven from a public health perspective so for me i decided to to write uh as I said, that year, I wrote 38 applications um, for the program because I knew that I wanted to conduct some research first about what it takes for a person to be happy. Because when we look at the uh, the statistics and we look at, you know, 
the crime rates and, and, and especially, you know, serious youth violence in particular communities, we have to look at all the factors that make it conducive for violence to be a, a go-to for these young black boys. It's not because they were born and just want to be animals and savages and carry knives. So we have to look at how can, what are the factors that are used to make somebody happy? And how can I use this to design a program that allows for these young people to go through a process of uncovering so many things that inevitably would lead to their increased levels of happiness, which inevitably would reduce violence. Because we know that prisons do not reduce reoffending. We know that people who go into prisons do not become less violent. We know that people who go into people referral units are inevitably going to go into prisons. We know that young people who go through a care system are more uh, likely to end up in prison. So therefore, we know that all these other things that have been put in place as a society's response to increased violence is not equal a reduction in violence. It's only fed the capitalist system, which is there to profit off of these violence that exist in our society anyway. So for me, that was the moment that I decided I wanted to, to conduct research and then to use this research to design a, um, a robust program, which was artistically driven. So I eventually got funded after applying for the 38 grants by the Wellcome Trust, uh, which allowed me to travel to some of the happiest countries in the world to ethnographically research what it means to be happy in these environments. So I you know, went to Denmark, went to Sweden, went to a lot of other Scandinavian countries, which register in the top five happiest countries. I also went to Bhutan, which is the only country that measures gross national happiness instead of gdp yes so i went to these different countries i interviewed scientists that that conduct the research around happiness i went to the happiness research institute which is based in copenhagen and denmark and i interviewed the ceo and all these other people and what i came back with was eight indicators that are used to measure happiness and the eight indicators were then used to design a week each week for one indicator of happiness to empower these young people using creative tools to explore how these individual indicators can be used to boost their own happiness, which ultimately would increase their attainment in school, which would ultimately improve their mental well-being and ultimately would reduce any uh, inclination to a serious youth violence. So these eight pillars were the first was trust. The second is togetherness and belonging. The third is money. Um, the fourth is freedom, security, um, purpose, health, physical, and mental, and balance. So all of these were then used to design programs that allow for me to use uh, creative tools like photography, poetry, film with these young people and giving them these tools. So I give them cameras to go into their neighborhoods and photograph who they trust and who they don't trust or areas they trust and areas they don't trust and to explore, annotate why. And then they bring it back into the classroom. We have discussions and they, they debate that. I give them opportunity to write who are the people that they spend uh, time with and what are the positive outcomes from that? And what are the negative outcomes that come from some of the people they spend time with to write prose form, uh, poetry, rap, whatever it is that they feel um, motivated to explore these themes with. I give them the tools and empower them to explore and express these things. And ultimately all these eight pillars every week I use artistic tools to allow these young people to uncover and explore these themes of themselves in their everyday lives. And then we have a discussion, we have debates about these things. And on the eight week, I then take these young boys on a trip to an art institution. Ultimately, I get them to ethnographically explore what does it feel as black boys in an environment that is completely colonial and white supremacist in a structure. How do they feel as black boys, 20 of them in a space like the Tate? How do they feel with the way people's, people police their bodies in those spaces? The art that they see how do they feel about how that does not reflect them in those spaces and then ultimately we have a debrief we explore that i photograph them in that space i empower them to be photographed against colorful backdrops which is counter stereotypical to how they always 
represent themselves. Yeah. So as part of the process, the culmination point is being able to get to the point where they're able to show this version of themselves to the world, the version that they never have ever felt safe enough to be able to show of themselves. Most of the time they have a, uh, uh, default look, which is the meme mug, the screw yeah. face, the the hoodie up, the gang fingers. That's how they represent themselves. So here I am challenging them to smile. And the first things they do is like, when I show them the images of previous boys, when I go into the sessions, they say, who is this? That's gay, sir. I'll never, you never get me taking pictures like this. But on the eighth week, these are the same boys that allow themselves to let go of these shackles of their versions of themselves that they've always known to represent a version that is uh, that is more authentic to who they genuinely are maybe the people that are closest to them are the only people that ever see that version of themselves but that's the visual that for me is devoid in our society because if people saw black boys and black men like this we would have less mark duggins we will have less leon bridges we will have less george floyds because people will not see black boys and black men inherently as aggressors dangerous um uh you know, victims and, and perpetrators of crime. Instead, they'll see a humanized version of black ideas and black identities, which we all see in the environments that we grew up. But that's not what the society portrays as black boys when we think of, look at, you know, media representation, newspapers, and, and, you know, political discourses that surround black boys and black identities. Absolutely. And through the work you've been able to do, the fact you've been able to travel all across the world in many aspects and Bhutan, I've heard about it. Yeah, they measure their GDP in terms of happiness. That tells you a lot. And even I want to do a bit more research into them. And I was saying to Kay off camera that I'm looking forward to collaborating with him and doing some work because this is the kind of collaborative energy we need to have. You know, people need to put their money where their mouth is and also put their efforts where they should be. projects like the one you're doing it's revolutionary in the aspects that people do not realize it i'm sure it'll take sometimes people to miss the water until the well runs dry Mm, for them to realize mm. the work that you are doing i've got to ask you as one of my final questions right because we have gone so far like i have thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it and i'm gonna definitely need to have you on for a part two so everyone that's listening this is not just part one this we're gonna we're gonna able to do more parts because i generally see collaborative work happening with k right now i want to ask you right what does the future hold for the smiling boys project and where would you like to see the smiling boys project in a few years time wow that's a that's a great question and that's i'm at a very important cusp right now in that the demand for the program is surpassed the supply um, because so far I'm the only artist that delivers the program. I designed it and I delivered at the moment. So, you know, in a, and each program is the model is I deliver the program for eight weeks uh, in a school and I work with uh, 20 black boys at a time. Um, so in five days, which are the five days in a week at the moment, I'm in nine schools in five days, which is, you know, a, a huge juggling act. So what I'm planning on doing is, and what working on doing at the moment is, you know, um, upskilling some young black boys to start to shadow and start to train them to start to become uh, facilitators in the near future. Um, I also uh, I'm working on developing an alumni program that seeks to continually provide the opportunity for these young boys to carry on the work that they started. We started together in the eight weeks and for them to start to, to be upskilled, to receive mentorship online by myself and other um, incredible black artists and black males. And then obviously provide them with opportunities um, in the long term through partnerships with other institutions, corporates and partnerships um, that allow for these young people to get 
access to internships to um, to paid employment in the long term. Also, I'm working on trying to um, deliver the uh, design of Smiling Girls Project because what has come into to light in in the last year and a half as I've you know delivered this program and, and received um, great levels of, of of success with the program. A lot of girls and a lot of people is like, man, we need one for the girls, and I'm like, that's important, but it's not going to be led by me because the reason why the Smiling Boys Project is so powerful is because I represent a visual representation of what these boys are. They see themselves in me. And I believe it's important that for the Smiling Girls program that I work with a black female, black artist that can, you know, we can rep, uh, replicate a lot of the findings, the best practice from the Smiling Boys and the Smiling Girls program that allows for the girls to also see themselves in an incredibly powerful black female or, or you know, uh, non-binary uh, female identifying artist that is able to to provide the same kinds of impacts and outcomes that the smiling boys has. So so that those are the the you know short, medium, long term goals and ideas for the program to kind of scale up the smiling boys project a little bit, um, and then to start building um, and designing the smiling girls project, which hopefully should be ready for the end of twenty twenty one slash early twenty twenty two. Talk about projecting into the future. Just as you have spoken about the future. I genuinely believe, as I said, that these people will never be able to forget you in their future. And you've Mm. evidently left a token, a seed, you know, a a magic bean into their present that will ultimately grow. You're allowing young men to see themselves emotionally literate, emotionally mature. And I feel emotionally empowered coming out of this conversation, as I'm sure so many of you listeners have been able to as well. I have thoroughly... Farley is actually an understatement. I Hmm. ultimately have felt a sense of emotional relief. And in many senses, this conversation has felt therapeutic to me to know Hmm. that there's another brother out there who is doing the work that needs to be done. And as I said, everyone who knows me, you know that I want to put the work in. So this is the kind of project I'm definitely going to collaborate on. I want to work on a piece with you to get your coverage up as well. So people can do great things for you and by you. Also as well, how can people support your project? Right. I mean, yeah, I think that's firstly teachers and, and senior leaders in the education sphere, you know, the more of, of, of schools and teachers that I have who are keen partners would always be great, you know, because as I said, I received some funding uh, to work in certain bars in London. Um, so being able to, to establish partnerships in those schools would be great. So, you know, bars, I mean, all bars in London, you know, is, is what, you know, I, I, I'm open to having a partnership with. Also, you know, um, outside of the school, in terms of partners, any corporates that, you know, are really interested in doing this real work and really want to support a program uh, or support a, a, an incredible, you know, set of amazing black boys, you know, it's always, uh, I'm always open to those type of partnerships. Um, I have a crowdfunder uh, on um, my social platform. So Smiling Boys Project page or Smiling Boys Podcast page, where you can support that as well directly from a monetary perspective. And again, just to continually amplify the, the project and the work that is being cascaded through the project and to, you know, engage in conversations with boys and men and other females as well and non-binary folk in your life and challenge, you know, some of these themes that are explored in the program so that we can create a much more healthier idea of uh, masculinity and gender in the, in the world that we're hoping to create moving forward. Wow. Honestly, I, I, I feel speechless because the only word I can take away is emancipatory, liberatory, revolutionary, and futuristic. Okay. <laughs> what an absolute 
honor. I feel privileged to have you on my platform to share the energy you have just been able to put out there. If people Thank have you, not felt the energy now, then I don't know what, because <laughs> it's just the significance of what you're doing. The future will only be the test of time to tell how much you right, have done. Right. I am. I'm so happy. We've been able to connect thoroughly on it oh god i don't know what word to describe (laughs) like we've spoken from the light of the day until the darkness i know bro that's actually crazy it's absolutely like people know me that i usually don't like doing things that are quite long but my podcasts have changed my mindset so much and Mm. if i didn't do the podcast that i've done i wouldn't have been exposed to an individual such as yourself even i have to give a big thanks to josephine for exposing me to the work that you have done as well like yeah. I've got to give her such a big shout out because big love, l- love and energy manifests itself in a myriad of ways. And yeah, I'm, I, I believe the future is safe and it is optimistic with individuals doing what you're doing in schools. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. And likewise, you know, your platform, you know, being able to, to cascade, you know, the, the amazing myriad of thoughts and, you know, uh, knowledge that you share on your platform is, is, you know, you take that responsibility very seriously. And I, you know, as a fan, as just somebody just that just, you know, is privy to your page, you know, as you highlighted through Josephine and, and her connection to us, you know, I've continually been, you know, inspired and just always feel so um, empowered and feel as, you know, um, hopeful and optimistic as you by listening to the things that you share and the conversations that you navigate on your platform as well because i think you know that's the type of um men that i believe the world uh moving forward uh need more of you know and we need to um continually just be empowered and emboldened um by the purpose that drives the work that we do and that is so evident every time i listen to you uh on your platform as well so thank you brother for for all the work that you do and i feel so honored to have been on the platform uh here with you today as well listen i'm full of smiles because it's so lovely to have two brothers that can share emotions and feelings and mm. feel no type of way about this and i hope this conversation is the blueprint for so mm. many other brothers out there to share their happiness and their joy their pleasure Mm. and their amazement with their other brothers out there who are doing great Mm. things. And just to also remind the man them in your life or the brotherhood Mm. you have or the young boys or the nephews or the cousins or anybody that they are loved. Absolutely. Lovable. And they are enough. Okay. Yes, brother. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me, brother. Have a lovely rest of the week. All right. Bye. Peace. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to having you again. If you've enjoyed, share, subscribe, follow and make sure everybody gets to have the blessing that is conversations. And remember, Flower Hour is the podcast where conversations blossom.